Kevin O'Brien, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. This is episode number 58. I really appreciate your time, and I'm excited to talk to you today about everything that we have in common and your career and teaching English and bread loaf and lacrosse and really anything that comes up here. So uh, I appreciate the time, and, and thank you very much. Well, it's uh, it's really an honor to be here, and uh, you know, Jake. So you know, I I appreciate the the and and flattered. Like, there's a lot of humility when um, I was I was looking through your roster of guests here. So thank you for having me. And I'm a little nervous, I have to say. I've never done a podcast before. <laughs> well, you look great. We're on Zoom. Um, we've been doing this all year, so I'm pretty comfortable with it now. Since you know, when mm -hmm. I first when we first started it, it was kind of tough to figure it out, you know, in terms of which way to take the conversation and, you know, how to get the most out of the episodes. But this is episode 58. We've been doing it all year. So um, just glad to have you. And, and I think the best way that these podcasts typically go are conversational. So I'm, I'm just going to kind of ask you some probing questions as you talk about you know, your life, your career, and the topics that we both are pretty passionate about. So um, maybe we can start with with your experience playing lacrosse at, at Penn and that, well, actually how you started playing lacrosse, really, because I read that you were a baseball player for most of your life and you kind of got started relatively late in, in the sport of lacrosse in high school. Yeah. And, and, you know, so I'm 47. So I graduated high school in 1992, just to kind of, you know, clarify, um, there wasn't a specialization in sports. So I, I grew up, uh, in Northeast Ohio outside of Cleveland and playing, uh, you know, first soccer and, and then baseball, uh, picked up basketball just in middle school. Uh, I ran middle school track and then, um, you know, many, many stories along the road, but, um, you know, I end up at Phillips Academy Andover for boarding school. And I saw kids the very first weekend for the first time throwing a lacrosse uh, ball around and, and the stick and kind of witnessed it from afar and uh, dabbled in it a little bit uh, that winter um, just because my friends were playing lacrosse. And then I was committed to playing again, sort of the, the travel baseball circuit after ninth grade. Um, so I knew I was going to play baseball in ninth grade all summer after ninth grade and baseball tryouts got rained out. So the, the story goes, I, I uh, put on a helmet for the very first time with bars. And if you look at your hand and just kind of focus on your hand and then try to look through the bars, uh, it's really hard um, not to see the bars. So I, <laughs> I wasn't allowed to play football growing up. I was a skinny kid. Uh, more of a track, uh, long distance runner. And uh, I went out there and I got just destroyed. You know, I, I couldn't pass. I couldn't catch. Like I could pass and catch without a helmet, but you put a helmet on and then have guys swinging sticks at you. It's a lot harder. Yeah, that's but, true. Uh, I was, <laughs> but uh, I was quick to get to ground balls and I'll never forget like picking up a ground ball, turning around and just getting blasted into a mud puddle mm. and thinking, oh, you get to hit people. And, um, you know, it was one of those moments where I had never played a contact sport like that, you know, soccer, basketball, baseball, track. Um, but it was um, a real awakening. And I had some great friends. We all ended up on the freshman sophomore team. Uh, we didn't win a game. Um, we lost uh, every game we played that freshman year. But 
you know, I worked hard um, and made varsity uh, the, the following year with a group of friends. I think six or seven of us made varsity our sophomore year. And uh, yeah, and it was a, just a, it's been a great journey with lacrosse. Um, I have great friends and it was always about those relationships with friends. So, um, so it's interesting how you stuck with it after the helmet experience and getting blown up into the mud pit and, you know, picking it up and maybe not having so much immediate success with it to start, you know, how you continued on and, and kept with it. Did you have coaches that really, you know, shepherded you and, and helped you get better at it or, or pushed you in the sport? Yeah. From the very beginning, um, even on that freshman sophomore team, we were kind of a bad news bears of, of, of players, but, uh, you know, I, um, uh, Coach Carter and, and, and Coach Meredith Price, um, they were just wonderful uh, mentors, um, wonderful, uh, you know, father figures in many ways when you were away at boarding school and very supportive of, uh, you know, all of us and, and just as we were developing and, and uh, you know, great sense, of, great sense of humor. You know, there was a humility in, in playing and losing every game. I mean, it was tough. Um, but then over the summer, uh, I, I went to university schools uh, summer camp. Um, so, uh, you know, and I had a, a great experience at that summer camp and I, I really kind of fell in love with the, the game, you know, that spring, that summer. And then, um, you know, Coach Brian Teeple at university school, a longtime math teacher. So the irony of sort of the odyssey of coming full circle back to university school, um, you know, is, is not lost on me. I think we all go through these, this, this journey um, in, in circles. So I um, made varsity, as I mentioned, so, uh, sophomore year. Um, and Paul Coxstein was an English teacher. Uh, he was a Princeton uh, undergrad and just played club, um, but he was uh, a scholar, Yale masters and Milton and, and would quote Shakespeare uh, on the lacrosse field. Um, <laughs> so he was just this, and a uh, gentle giant too. He seemed like he was six seven, but I think he's six four, six five. You know, but he just was that. Um, but rather stoic in, in many ways. But again, had a wonderful sense of humor. I lived in his dorm um, my senior year, uh, a small dorm, and it was a real honor to be you know invited to to live in 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 more or less his, under his roof uh, with just four other students. Um, in the, the dorm side of the building. Um, my sophomore year, I ended up breaking my hand. Um, and, I, and I tell students, um, you know, one of the reasons I care a lot about, you know, we'll get into this as meditation is like, I was a very emotional, I had a lot of angst, uh, I had a lot of frustrations and I punched a, a mirror, um, you know, just boxer's fracture. Um, so, and I just looked at my hand, I'm like, that's not gonna fit in a glove, you know? Um, and I sat out that whole sophomore season and I had worked very hard. I had even gone on the university school uh, spring break trip and, you know, to uh, prepare to make, um, you know, to try out for varsity. And I, I had made varsity that day. And I, I knew um, very early on when you show up at Andover, like day one, they're like, welcome to Andover. Um, for the first time, half of you are now in the bottom half of your class let that sink in. Um, and I was an honors 
kid at, at Mayfield City Schools in Cleveland, and it was a public school, a very good school um, in many ways, but I was not prepared for French immersion. I was struggling in, in, in academically. So, you know, those relationships, those, those mentors at Andover, um, Coach Modesti, the athletic director, assistant coach, um, you know, Coach Bill Scott, I played soccer as well. Uh, and then in the winter, I did some, you know, everything from uh, pole vault my sophomore year to uh, wrestling my junior year and earned a couple letters there. But it was, um, you know, those teachers, those coaches, um, and sort of the, the old school triple threat, like you're, you're in, you know, the counselors, mentors uh, in the dorm. Um, so it's a big reason why I've spent 11 of my 20 years at boarding schools. You know, I, I, I love that holistic aspect, but it's good to be home at university school now. So I imagine Andover is very similar to where I interned and really what got me into teaching was Choate Rosemary Hall. I did a summer mm -hmm. program there and I was just thinking the whole time, this is ridiculous that people go to school here because it's beautiful. Uh, the teachers were amazing that, you know, we were doing afternoon. Mm -hmm. I was helping out with tennis and some lacrosse stuff. And I just, I just loved it there. But I also know how competitive those, you know, similar to the schools that we teach at now, um, how competitive those schools are. And, and what was it like for you kind of growing at Andover? It seems like freshman, sophomore year, you're figuring some things out and, you know, adjusting to that environment. But how did, how did you kind of get on track there and, and figure it out and grow as a student and an athlete at, at such a competitive place? Um, yeah, and, and I was on like sort of double secret prob probation after I broke my hand. I was um, failing a number of classes. I had broke my right hand. I, I had been writing. And, um, you know, and then, then the second half of that trimester in the spring, I, I really doubled down. And then coming into my junior year, um, after being given, um, you know, a second chance to come back my junior year, um, I, uh, I, I, I think one of my best friends and I, you know, made a point to like, we were going to go to the library um, right from practice um, and really beginning to not just do the work, um, but really spend that extra time reading and learning um, and sort of sequester ourselves, um, you know, from, you know, the dorm distractions and, and, and other things. So, you know, I think, you know, and, and, and having a friend to kind of, you know, partner with to like let we got we got to make up for some some of our lost time um and again i had great teachers great mentors who when i saw them as not just sort of you know teachers that are giving grades but as someone i can go to and and sit with my uh soccer coach um who is my calculus teacher particularly senior year you know i'm going through the college process and I'm at his dinner table, um, you know, reviewing calculus so I can do well uh, in his course because I'm looking at the Naval Academy, I'm looking at Penn and, and some other great schools and, and um, you know, lacrosse had opened the door for me to, to have these conversations, but at the end of the day, I had to do well. But there's a lot of pressure um, then, but I think even greater pressure now um, because it is a, you know, for these universities, it, it's, global competition there was no uh there's no secret about Choate and Andover now you know to get into Andover today is is um you know and I was very fortunate um to to go to a place like Andover 
um, just as my uncles had gone to Andover, two of them on full financial aid. My, my grandfather and my, my grandmother um, were, were big readers and my, my grandfather had read about uh, Andover. And so when my dad lost his business, um, my uncle who had gone there, he's an attorney now, uh, very successful, uh, gives back to Andover, said, hey, if you apply to Andover, you're doing well in middle school, you could get financial aid. Um, and that worked out. Um, and it worked out at Penn as well. But the the pressure on students today, I have, I can't imagine, you know, and I think empathy is aspirational. Um, I can't imagine, you know, sort of the pressure and expectations to, you know, get the perfect test scores, to get the perfect grades, and that that notion to be perfect. Um, you know, I think of all the moments of grace and, and sort of second chances I had throughout high school, college even, um, you know, where, you know, I, I think it can be um, high stakes, high pressure too often all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And kids are gonna make mistakes and how do we um, support them through those mistakes when they feel they have to be perfect. When you were at Andover, were you fascinated by English? Were you into that subject already? Or was that something that really happened when you got the pen and you started to kind of enjoy English classes and think maybe that was your area that you wanted to study? I can't say enough about the, the English department at Andover. Like I, I had incredible English teachers. Um, and they, I think it was the, the personal connection um, that I had with my freshman English teacher in particular, my, my junior year. And then my senior year, I, I did a lot more creative writing. However, um, you may be familiar with the, the book, Susan Cain, Quiet. Um, I was as quiet as they can, they come in, in the classroom, uh, which is kind of ironic now that, you know, you, we're in an extrovert role um, as teachers, but I'm much more sort of lean, you know, ambivert or in, introvert. Um, so I'd rather read and write than speak up in class. Um, so the class discussions were very intimidating. Um, at Andover in particular. And I'll never forget, um, you know, always getting those comments, needs to participate more, needs to speak up more. But I was of that that mindset, like I'd rather let them think I'm smart than like open my mouth and let them think otherwise. And I think I'm quoting Twain there, loosely there. Um, <laughs> but then I, I, I go to Penn my freshman year and I, I, I had spent some time with my uncle who was an orthopedic surgeon and I don't know what I was thinking, looking back, uh, this is not a path to follow, but if it's like one of those sort of like dead end paths, um, one, um, so I, I decided I was going to take chemistry after never taking chemistry in, in college. And I mentioned calculus in high school, um, was a challenge. Uh, and I was going to the Naval Academy and I ended up not going to the Naval Academy because I said, look, you know, I don't think the math and science is my path. But I remember reading Great Gatsby for the very first time and just kind of fell in love with the book, partly because of, you know, personal high school girlfriend breakup and all that and sort of had that daisy, you know, and I tell students, you need to read The Great Gatsby after you've had your heart broken. You know, it's a different book, you know, mm -hmm. and then... Uh, it's I just I just kind of mumbled under my breath like someone was saying something just kind of ripping the book and I said have you read the book <laughs> and I just 
And I was like, like, I mean, it was a survey class of postmodern literature, and this was the high modern begin beginning, like to compare all the postmodern texts, and like all eyes just sort of like, like beamed on me, and I was like, did I say that out loud? <laughs> and I had to like apologize and then defend why I disagreed with the novel. And then I was a participant in that conversation because instead of opening my mouth, here I have opened my mouth and I look like a real jerk, to put it mildly. I now had to speak up regularly. I had to be sort of in the arena, if you will, uh, and having those conversations because otherwise, like, this is not going to end well in, in many ways. So, um, but once I kind of got over that hump and I was really doing the reading, um, I can't say, um, yeah. When, so Once you spoke <laughs> out about that book, it probably became so much easier. You were now part of the discussion. They, you had the opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I had, I was, a, I was always a reader. Um, you know, my, my uncles, my grandmother, my mom, you know, my dad, all readers. And, and there would always be a recommendation. Um, you know, you'd get a stack of books for, your, for you know, usually from half price bookstore or other places of, uh, for, for birthdays and Christmas. Um, so there was always books. Um, but I remember borrowing books from my uncle's bookshelf and he had gone to Andover and, and, and reading um, World According to Garp and, um, you know, all the King's men and, um, just loved, loved reading. Um, so the reading part was easy and I could kind of have insights, but it, even right now I, I pause because I, I, when I get nervous, I start to ramble, um, or I just get quiet. So, um, but just having that sort of awareness, like I, I need to be part of this conversation and then, um, one of the things I loved about Breadloaf was the conversations. Um, you know, here we are as as teachers, but having these these in depth conversations beyond the classroom. I can't say that was the case in the locker room at Penn or on the on the bus at Penn, when most of my, my my friends were were off to Wall Street. You know, where I was one of two English majors at Penn. Um, I was definitely the Thoreauian different drummer. Um, it's funny. It's funny to me how uh, it was. It was kind of Great Gatsby that struck you the most, and I obviously you t teach that every year. And for my classes, all the most all the boys really enjoyed that reading and and continue to enjoy that book. Um, but it, it's funny that high school students love that book so much when it really is a book about like regrets and the past and heartbreak and kind of things that you really experience as you get older. Um, I, th I just mm -hmm. think it's interesting how that book clicks so much with high school students and it clicked mm -hmm. with you. And, and my, my view on, on, on the novel has evolved and you, you read a lot of things about it, but I, you know, on just on, on a language level, it's accessible. Uh, you know, there, there's the Keatsian, you know, poetry that was inspired I'm pausing it. I just had like a bottleneck of thoughts. Um, but you know, with Fitzgerald's own biography, um, you, you you dig into his life and how he mirrored his um, fiction closely, thinly veiled autobiography in many ways. Um, I, I will note that um, I feel more of a Nick uh, affinity than Jay Gatsby, um, but there was something about Gatsby's almost arrested development. You know, having 
you know, can't repeat the past and being stuck in the past. And it's, it's a novel about letting go in many ways. You know, that's the tragic flaw in many ways. He can't let go of the past. He's stuck. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's painful to be like in that stuck phase. And I, and I think that's what at that time um, resonated where um, you want to go back into the past and like do things differently. But Yeah, it's funny. I, um, I did extra credit opportunity since Fitzgerald spent so much time in Baltimore uh, with Zelda mm-hmm. at Hopkins. I did a extra credit opportunity and I had no idea kind of how far his gravesite was from where we are in Baltimore, but I is it, is it in Columbia, Maryland? Is that it's in Rockville, Maryland, which is a good Rockville, that's it. Yeah, yeah. it's a good forty five minutes to an hour away. But mm-hmm. I was like to my classes this year, if you guys want to go to Fitzgerald's grave, I'll give some extra credit. And I didn't know it'd be, you know, I went myself and I was like, wow, this is kind of takes up your whole afternoon. And mm-hmm. pretty much maybe half of my students all went out there on like little road trips out to Fitzgerald's gravesite, took their pictures, yeah. but I think it's kind of a good memory for them to have and they'll, they'll all read mm-hmm. the book again. So um, that, that book yeah. go, went really well this year and continues to, to be a hit in, in American literature here. Yeah. It reminds me of a colleague, uh, Dr. Dan Dyer at West Reserve Academy. Um, uh, he's written professional book reviews, over 800 of them um, for uh, Kirkus, I think it is, the you know the book reviews. But um, he has done pilgr- pilgrimages to the grave sites, the birth sites, of, and he will read, um, when writing a book review, everything by that author from start to finish. Um, and, and, and then visit in his, his epic road trip. So, um, I'm a little envious of, of, of that experience, but, um, that definitely came up <laughs> teaching, teaching, um, I'm curious, uh, the Tom Buchanan character, uh, particularly the last few years that uh, he's been more on my consciousness and sort of his, his views, um, I, I think has, is has offered uh, a window into new conversations around, um, you know, race and and really sort of the, the whiteness that he speaks of in, in that. I don't know if that came up uh, for you this year or something. Yeah, it definitely comes up in that, I guess it's the first chapter that you, that you mm-hmm. notice that. Um, yeah. Yeah, and just his treatment of really everybody, but his wife mm-hmm. and you know, yeah. and, and the other characters and just his philosophy. Uh, it's definitely yeah. an interesting kind of window to talk yeah. about some contemporary issues. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you know, I, I use the, the, we talk a lot about the windows and mirrors metaphor, um, you know, how novels can be, you know, um, whether the Gatsby in some ways is a, is a mirror and, and Nick in some ways is always kind of looking in the window um, sort of as a voyeur almost watching, you know, the, this, this drama unfold as a narrator, um, an unreliable narrator, but that idea of windows and mirrors, um, yeah, I give credit to, um, you know, do you guys have a national seed project with seeking educational equity and diversity? It's a a faculty conversation. Um, I did some training with them at Milton Academy a few years ago and it was transforming it transformational. Um, to be part of that conversation 
especially, you know, in light of this past year. But I know um, many schools are wrestling with, um, you know, I, I was curious about community um, equity and inclusion. Um, we, we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and I think that's a conversation that uh, is ongoing and, and never ending. And it's been a, a challenging conversation, but it's it's a, an imperative to have these conversations. So, wh so what are those conversations like at the school that you're at now at university? And how is that playing out there? I, I think um, one of the things that has... Um, helped with, with particularly with with seed is having a a, a space for faculty um so it's a train train the trainer program so you, you we went to milton academy we spent eight days um learning about um you know equity inclusion privilege oppression and then creating a forum for faculty to have conversations once a month um around topics um where you know, we assume good intent, but bringing sort of awareness to, you know, the aspects of identity that may be sensitive, you know, to have conversations with. And, and a lot of it is having um, reflection time, journal time, and then pair and share and, and, and small group discussions and then larger group discussions. It was obviously challenged this past year with, um, you know, Zoom. Uh, we we started having these these meetings during Zoom once a month, and it's it's a way as we're we're wrestling with these questions and and in many ways language around equity and inclusion. How do we define these these values? And um, there's some clarity in, in in having these conversations because I think we all have assumptions, and and then we we have a moment to kind of look in the mirror but also have a window into other experiences from a diverse uh, group of faculty where you, you see different perspectives. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful place. Um, I like this idea of safe space, brave space. And that's uh, a book by John Palfrey, who is the former head at, at Andover. And he's done, Andover's done some great uh, DEIJ work. Um, and and, I, and I follow, I've, I've always kind of followed that work. Um, you know, from just having great mentors, um, you know, from LGBTQ, uh, there was a uh, GSA founded in 1990, um, which is hard to imagine, you know, a, a club like that being founded so long ago. Um, but having these conversations around identity are, I think, are imperative. And I think many ways, um, our education, my education, there were gaps, you know, there were some holes. So, you know, as we, we listen to podcasts and listen to narratives, um, we gain those perspectives. Um, but then by having conversations, uh, that's where we create community of trust. Yeah, I would agree a hundred percent. And I think you brought up that these conversations all really hit their peak during the COVID year. Um, had made it all the more difficult to actually be candid and listen and, you know, and be in the same room, really. I think the physical presence is something that's important to, to be with each other when you're having any type of conversation. But 
Um, it was it was definitely difficult, maybe more difficult for those conversations this year, but really just in, in class. And I don't know how university, uh, you know, did school this year, whether it was virtual or hybrid or how you made that work as an English teacher in classes too. But I, I found it difficult to, you know, my classes probably similar to yours are very conversationally based and to have meaningful conversations and kind of get my students to be open with each other and comfortable over such a kind of awkward landscape this year was definitely a challenge I think for everyone. Yeah. And, and, and looking back on it, I'm still sort of unpacking and, you know, I journal a lot. I do my morning pages and, and, you know, the questions like, you know, what, what have we learned, you know, this, this past year? Um, because I think in, in the moment, everyone was doing the best they could just to kind of get through, you know, I know um, we had a transformation of our, you know, school where um, we had hybrid. Um, we were, um, in person, um, I, they added a, a fifth section. So it was, it was, you know, just from a logistics standpoint, I, I teach ninth grade, two sections of ninth grade. And then instead of two sections of 11th grade, I had three sections of 11th grade, but I had one section with 16 students and then one section with eight and then one section with eight because of logistics in and around the, the you know, the campus, um, you know, where, I'm doing with freshmen with, you know, I had 15 and, and 16 freshman students um, more stand and deliver um, because they are uh, in person with masks on um, spread out at eight feet long tables at the end of each table. And mm. so gone are the Harkness, you know, sitting around a round table and having those conversations. Um, and then you throw in the curveball of if a, if a student has the sniffles, he's online. Um, and we had a number of students who, particularly in the winter with, with hockey and uh, quarantining, um, uh, some even had COVID. Um, so um, at one point, I think I had of that junior group, I had, I had quite a few non-AP and I had a number of uh, you know, hockey players in that, in that group, I have maybe seven on, uh, in person and then nine online and some students were online the entire year. So I don't know about you, but that cognitive load of like, you know, teaching the kids in mass and then asking students to, to, you know, open their homes up and turn their cameras on and, you know, and I think we can make us assumptions about like everyone has their own room. Um, that's not always the case for, for our students. And, you know, we, um, we, we all did sort of the best we could. Um, but that sacred space of sitting, you know, the Socratic of like sitting around uh, uh, the Harkness and having those conversations and facilitating those conversations, it's such a different dynamic. Um, now there, is there... How, do you rec how do you recreate that in this hybrid or... And then we went all virtual just to, to finish like November through January. We were all virtual. And then we came back in person. Um, for the rest I, of the I year. I credit the school for, for getting us through this year in person for the year. Nice. So, oh, that's great. Yeah. Is there anything that maybe worked well for you this year 
virtually or through the hybrid learning or anything that you learned during the COVID year of teaching English that you think you're going to take with you going forward into, you know, assuming next year is all in person and normal. Is there anything that you think you're, you'll, that will remain with you as a, as a teacher? Um, I, I've been using um, journaling and, and sort of a mindfulness approach of giving students a question, a prompt, a quote. Um, you know, Friday, we focus on journaling in terms of like TGIF, like, you know, what are three things you're grateful for? And, but this year, I, I think in terms of social emotional learning and, and emotional intelligence was, um, you know, how are you feeling? You know, and giving them, you know, vocabulary. Um, one of the podcasts that I, I listened to was Brene Brown's um, Unlocking Us. And she also has Dare to Lead. And I've bought a bunch of books uh, based on conversations that uh, of guests that she had. But, um, you know, this uh, Dr. Mark Brackett at Yale uh, Center for Emotional Intelligence um, has a book out called Permission to Feel and giving them a mood meter of, okay, you're yellow, high energy. Um, and pleasant versus blue, uh, low energy and unpleasant. And then red is high energy, but unpleasant, um, you know, and distinguishing, are you frustrated or are you annoyed or are you livid? And like kind of giving them some vocabulary as Mark Rackett would talk about, name entertainment. Um, and this idea of sort of like on a zero to five to zero to negative five, whereas like the green is like low energy. Um, you, you're probably familiar with this. Uh, I'm not actually, no, it's, it's interesting. Like I've, it, I've it, done similar it, uh, journals or questions where I kind of ask how you're feeling or give me a color or something like that, yeah. but nothing as specific as, you know, these specific colors to measure your, your temperament. And, and, and the, the, the colors is like sort of like a, a ground floor, like base level where you can kind of begin there, but to give um, them some emotional intelligence to like really name their own, um, you know, feelings because it, it was an emotional roller coaster for all of us. You know, the Zoom's not working. You're, you're dropping kids left and right on the Zoom, um, you know, and like there were just so many different um, challenges this past year to have that self-awareness of my own, am I frustrated or am I annoyed um, to, you know, how do we shift our, our mood and state? Um, but then also to translate that to the text, you know, how do you start to use these, you know, terms um, to help um, identify the, you know, characters and what they're feeling. Okay. What can you infer into what is said? And the irony is, you know, this is what they're really feeling mm -hmm. um, and, and giving them some language around that. So again, like name it to tame it, um, but also just asking students like what's on your mind, you know, kind of coaching them on like what's on your mind, what else is on your mind? Because when you only have like a voice on a Zoom screen and you just get like good, fine, whatever, you know, yep. like you have to kind of follow up and, and stay connected and be curious. Um, it was a very humbling year because most of our communication is nonverbal. Like you can read a room when a bunch of boys come in and like different vibes, 
you know, and, and sort of the, the, the advantage of being in class with certain boys versus the disadvantage of being home um, on Zoom, maybe even all year, um, isolated um, mental health issues um, are inevitable, you know, when you, when you feel that um, removed. So spending more time just checking in um, then you may, because you have to have that conversation, even if it's just that first 10 minutes. So let's, let's, you know, take a minute, get clear on like, what's on your mind, what else is on your mind? Like, what is the greatest challenge for you right now? And then having a student just naming their greatest challenge right now, and then, and having the courage to like, you know, share that. Um, and you mentioned the word like comfortable. And I think one of the phrases like, choosing courage over comfort. And I think, how do we mindfully like take that deep breath when we feel uncomfortable so that we can have these conversations and take the risk of being like, no, seriously, how are you really? And, you know, kids, kids will open up. Um, some kids will not open up, but to know that people care and they're not alone. Um, you know, and I, I shared my story about losing my brother, Connor, uh, to, to bipolar and suicide, um, you know, that was such a, a, a real concern, you know, for their, their health and well-being. Um, so that's something particularly this year, but even moving forward, I think, you know, having, um, you know, the ruler approach to recognize, understand, label, um, and, and have real empathy for students that, like, I can't imagine what it's like to be at home and zooming and the FOMO you might be experiencing not to be in the building right now, but you're sacrificing, you know, being home because for your family um, and for your grandmother, you're home. And that's the choice I would make, you know, if, if I were in a multi-generational home, you mm -hmm. know, so um, you can't fault the kid for being at home and zooming. Um, and um yeah, there's just so many aspects of this year where we really had to rethink and reflect and say, what assumptions do I have at play right now? You know, kid just wants to be at home. And sure, there are some kids that like didn't wake up in time. So they just flipped on the Zoom and took a day off. And hey, maybe that's what he needed. Um, who knows? Um, so I think like, who am I to? I think this conversation is so important because I was feeling the same way from when COVID hit to, you know, throughout the year, um, just, you know, thinking about what it's like to be on Zoom all day long. And then after your Zoom, you have to complete all your homework. And, you know, in a lot of cases, your teachers aren't really maybe understanding or balancing their workload. They're probably trying to get the same amount done as typically would during the school year. But thinking about the students and having to look at a screen all day and then continue to look at a screen to complete your homework. That really takes a toll on your mental health, your well-being. Um, I'm curious, as a teacher, is there, in addition to questions and checking in and trying to understand the emotions of your students, is there anything that, you know, tips or advice? Because I know that you're... Um, you meditate a lot, you do a lot of yoga, you, you keep all of this important stuff in mind in your own life. Is there anything that you advised your students to do 
on a daily basis during this difficult year to to help them out? And is there anything that really worked for your students after giving them some kind of advice or, or feedback or, you know, um, some ways to handle such a tough time? You know, when, when I, when I think of like advice, like, I, I don't think it was necessarily advice, but more, you know, asking questions. Um, you know, what, you know, what are you looking forward to? Um, asking questions, like, what are you grateful for? Um, and, and not grateful, like you should be grateful um, in, in a shaming way, um, because we can use like gratitude as like, you should be grateful for this opportunity. And, you know, you have all the advantages of going to, to a school. And, and so to be kind of aware, um, but I think just to listen more um, and hold some space for students to even have, we had 85 minute classes. Um, so we went from, um, you know, sort of that gauntlet of like seven classes, 45 minutes with some extended blocks in the middle um, to just four classes every other day, um, sort of like an A day, B day, you know, A day, B day, um, alternating. Um, but the, you know, that 85 minute, you know, there, there were some advantages, you know, you can kind of slow things down and then do some work in class. Um, but you know, in so many words, the question is like, what does self-care look for you, look like for you? You know, for some it's gaming, you know, because if they're gaming and, you know, I, I have my opinions about gaming in excess, um, but if they're socializing through games, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I always like to kind of come back to this, 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 this expression my dad said about like, um garbage in garbage out he was a computer science um you know information systems um guy and he uh you know more a uh, 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 more polite way of saying that is you are what you eat. so just be mindful of your intakes um mm -hmm. and talking about you know how important sleep is and sleep is a health imperative and what happens to the brain when you don't sleep um so my course this year um not a life skills class, but I, I think using literature to, to connect, um, using poetry and particularly in April um, to, to give voice to, to feelings and thoughts and stories that may not be uh, represented otherwise um, or, or articulated like that frost notion of the lump in the throat. You know, that's what poetry gives language to that. The, the, the year, I, I feel like we're, I'm, I'm just coming out of it. You know, mm -hmm. we're still having this conversation. I don't even know if I'm ready to have this conversation. Like, I don't know what worked. We got through it um, and doing more reflecting so we can redesign a better year next year. Um, but we are um, you know, fortunate to to have the vaccine and, and to have um, more normalcy moving forward. So, um, but this was a huge wake up call in so many ways this past year, if we don't kind of reflect even on the painful things, especially on the painful things, the frustrating things this past year, there's, there's no real learning. Um, so I'm interested in um, some ways that you personally kind of check in with yourself and you talked about journaling and gratitude and I know you're big into yoga and meditation, but I'm curious about your own practices and some of the things that you do that, that really help you mentally and um, 
and maybe what you do when you journal, like what, what that looks like. Are you just kind of writing your thoughts and your feelings and checking in with yourself or do you have a certain mm-hmm. practice that you do every morning? You know, I, 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 I journal a lot as, you know, just throughout, um, I picked up a moleskin journal uh, when I went to Oxford for the first time, uh, or first time I, I traveled internationally, I was um, awarded a grant and I was able to go to Oxford and study um, Shakespeare um, and 20th century poetry. So I found, you know, at, uh, in the town of Oxford, a bookstore that sold moleskin journals. So I've been doing that for a long time. Um, this past year, I really adopted the artist's way um, by Julia Cam- Julia Cameron, and I have it like right here, like morning pages journal and just sort of a, you know, brain dump, you know, just to kind of get whatever is going on. And then I can kind of like even create the to-do list from, from that, but just to kind of uh, let all the things that are circling up settle. Um, you know, yoga was a New Year's day. I was living in New York City. Um, it was, my, I lost my brother February 26th, uh, 2000, and here was New Year's Day, um, January 1st, 2001, and the night before, I was talking to someone, and he uh, he was seeing someone who was a yoga instructor, and I was training for a second marathon, and I was complaining about my back, and he said, you should try this yoga class out, so I went to this class, and it happened to be Elena Brower, and um a cornell graduate and it was a cornell lacrosse player who had who had recommended um the class and it was um a huge emotional relief because i was dealing with a lot of grief at that time um having lost my brother and we can process uh grief in a lot of unhealthy ways and i'll just say that this was the first time i felt some peace you know and and you know, the, the shame, the, the blame, the guilt, um, the regret, all of that. Kind of, and I just literally cried on my mat. Um, one of the jokes is I always felt like sort of like this big lacrosse player and I was bigger than uh, kind of going in and like George Costanza at the model party. Like I, I did not belong there, but I, it was a very strict kind of practice. Like I just put my head down in child's pose, did my class, cried on my mat, rolled it up, left usually to make eye contact with anyone. Um, and it was a real gift. And I, I'm, I'm kind of getting goosebumps because I still remember like those first few classes. Um, and that's been a gift for, for the last, you know, 20 plus years now. And it was something that was scoffed at and I'd bring it up and, you know, I kind of get the side eye, like whatever. Um, and it's been something that led to meditation. I started meditating uh, with a TM teacher right before bread loaf. uh, When I was taking some really tough classes, my personal practice is sort of like that 20 minutes and 20 minutes twice a day. That doesn't always happen. The reality of, you know, things, you don't always have that, that luxury of that time. So even five to 10 minutes, but at bread loaf, there was a real luxury after a morning class before lunch, I think it was at 1230. I would sit, and then, uh, um, you know, behind looking out onto the, the beautiful, uh, you know, field um, and just sit for 20 minutes, then go to lunch and be present at lunch and kind of let every, all of the ideas and all the questions and all the stress of like, I got to write a paper on this and 
everything kind of settled. And then we'd have these monster, you know, two and a half hour or two to 5 PM classes. And I would meditate after those and I'd go to dinner and it just gave me, um, a sense of like calm and clarity where if I don't do that, people will recognize it, <laughs> you know? So it, it helps me to connect dots and, and just to let all of the, there's a great video, um, you know, mindfulness video, just breathe that idea of like the snow globe, everything gets, you know, stirred up and then everything just kind of settles. Um, so get ready for bread loaf. My advice, just meditate, like, <laughs> just sit there. Don't overcomplicate it. Listen to your breath. Your thoughts will come and go like clouds and just come back to the next inhale. Oh, sorry. Something popped, popped up. No worries. Um, yeah. So unfortunately bread loaf is virtual. This, Oh, got to do it. Oh, again. is it? I was curious. Yeah, it's it's virtual this summer. So, um, oops, sorry, we're having some issues here. Um, so yeah, it's gonna be online. But I'm so excited to actually. I don't even know what the campus or anything looks like. I'm kind of, you know, I'm gonna do this summer. My sister just moved out to Seattle, Tacoma area in Washington. So I'm gonna go out there, which I'm sure it's a, maybe a similar feel to the to the mountain mm -hmm. landscape, yeah. but. I'm excited to actually get on campus next summer and see what it's, see what it's all about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ripton, Vermont, um, you know, bread loaf there, there's nothing quite like it. Um, it, it was a real gift because I, you know, I was a work study division one, you know, athlete in college and, you know, the luxury at grad school to kind of sit and, and have these conversations um, with professors, with uh, students, fellow teachers from all over the you know the country was a was a real luxury um so i'm i'm, I'm curious to, to hear how that goes um you know because I, I think so much of the place and the sense of community how how do you replicate that in a virtual space mm -hmm. um and if you and if uh if done well, it, it can be powerful and you get to go travel and do Seattle and, and do a lot of things. And my, my, my hope is that uh, you'll, you'll get to Vermont. I did a summer at, at the Alaska campus. Um, I never did Oxford through Breadloaf. I did extra college through a different program, but. So I think um, they might've, get... they might've gotten rid of the Alaska. Cause I, that's the first time I'm hearing about Alaska. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, summer of like 2004 or five, 2004, I think. That was my first summer because Vermont was full. But hmm. And was um, that was that a really rich experience in Alaska for for the first summer of the program? It was uh, it was really unique. I had never been out there. I flew out there. I didn't have a car. Uh, you were at the Juno campus of uh, Southeast Alaska University and I studied um, that particular su summer interestingly enough another postmodern class um, and then also uh, American um, rom romanticism transcendentalism so a lot of Emerson and Thoreau and to, to be walking um, you know 
in, in sort of the, the mountains there of Juneau. Uh, we were set up uh, away from campus, but it was a, it was a great community of, of just 60 students. So it was very small and rather intimate. You, you, um, but what I loved about Breadloaf is the barn and the guest speakers and lecturers that would come, the writers that would come and, and to have uh, that experience and then to read poetry my, my senior year um, from the same you know, lectern as Seamus Heaney. I missed Seamus Heaney's visit by a couple of years, but I heard that was magical. Um, one, one of my favorite classes was, was Victor Luftig. Anything with Victor Luftig, I recommend. Um, and they're, they're all wonderful, but I, I, I give a special shout out to Victor Luftig at, at University of Virginia. And he taught a course, uh, Seamus Heaney in context. So we, we, we looked at all of his poetry and the historical uh, context in, in Northern Ireland. Um, and uh, really a, an incredible experience, great group of people. I'm sure you formed so many relationships there that you still keep in touch with your, your classmates and your... I, I, I lived off campus my last year. And I think that's one of the, the one things I would recommend not doing if you like it was nice to live in Middlebury there was a uh, an apartment uh, that, that was available um, through um, happenstance so I was like yeah hey, that would be great but I think we missed out on a lot of the socializing that last year um, but yes I, I still have a handful of, of friends um, you know that we stay in touch and we talk um, so it's a um, but there's there's something about like just the whole community like when when you see um, someone who's gone to Breadloaf, it there there's those fond feelings that, that come up and, and for the experience. So it's a it's a great community um, that's ongoing. And w one of my dreams is someday to be uh, an an older student uh, taking that master's in literature that they created. Just true. Uh, yeah. You know. Um, maybe with a specialty in creative writing. We'll see. So I'm sure this question has a lot of different answers, but I'm curious how your experience at Breadloaf impacted your career as a teacher and what ways that you, you maybe changed as a teacher after going to Breadloaf. I, I think it's the one-on-one the -on -one conversations I have with professors. You know, to sit down with a professor and... and kind of walk through an essay and and some professors were were did that more so than than others but uh to have those writing conferences um i, I think writing is very um personal to so to teach it in mass to to a large group but you know i had a poetry class with paul Muldoon um my, my again my last year and there were just a dozen students in the class and he would sit and, and talk in conference with us and read with us um and give us feedback and uh you know so i, I like to have those one-on-one -on -one conversations where um you know obviously you make the comments um on on essays but you know not to be cynical but like far too often they just want to know the great you know mm -hmm. versus i rather have the conversation so when you have those those writing conversations when you kind of in that conversation go oh and then you start to see the structure and the organization and, and sort of the clarity. Um, so 
Yeah, that's actually something that I've been even trying to do now. It's so time intensive, but it's I think it's so much easier for me to sit down with someone and tell them what's going on with their essay or their paper. Whereas if I kind of just put, I could spend so much time putting comments on there and and writing notes, but in reality, how many of my students are going to read through all of my, you know, all of my short paragraphs of feedback when if you just meet for me, meet with me for 10 minutes, I could talk you through the, but it does take time obviously. And you know, you know well enough about that, but when um, when I was at Western Reserve Academy, there was a water fountain um, right across from my classroom, and it was disheartening. You know, to there was also a re- recycling um, bin right there, and you you'd give back the essays, and then you'd look over after getting you know uh, a, a sip, uh, and and you look, and you're like, all those hours are now recycled. Um, so it made me rethink those, you know, and, and, and lean more towards the conversations. Um, and I, I will also say, uh, Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird um, in Janet Burway's uh, book, uh, Writing Fiction, I had uh, the pleasure of working with Patricia Powell, uh, a novelist um, and instructor for not just uh, a creative writing class, but also an independent writing project. And, um, you know, she talked about, um, you know, the just getting it down, the downdraft of Anne Lamott's, like, shoddy first drafts. And it's a different word, but you want to keep it. And, um, you know, to just have that downdraft, and then you can fix it up later. Um, and recommending to students I shouldn't be the first person to be reading this essay out loud to you. So that usually gets them in the habit of, I want you to, and I'll even say like a choir, read your essay out loud. Ready? One, two, three, go. And they're reading it out loud. I'm like, is there anything you'd like to change? They're like, yeah, okay, let's take 15 minutes, um, make those changes because you can hear it. they they have a gap between what's on the page and what's in their head um so once they read it with you know fresh eyes after they wrote it god knows what hour and you know the wee hours of the morning it's a very different essay when they read it out loud um so i've gotten into that so i'm not sitting down at a writing conference and they haven't read it out loud yeah that's a great idea you can catch a lot of those things like kind of like reading um playing music by ear, writing by ear. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, so when you went to Western Reserve Academy, what was the kind of decision there as a first teaching job? How did that, how did that come to fruition, your decision to go to that school and get into to teaching? Well, um, well, there's the, you know, Skip Flanagan, uh, the head of school at Western Reserve Academy, um, and it, it actually goes back. My very first teaching job was at St. Andrews Episcopal School, and I came in mid-year as a head lacrosse coach, and I was there for, um, you know, four lacrosse seasons, three and a half years, and then I interviewed uh, with Carney Sando, and um, I had aspirations at that time to go back to, to Andover, and, um, you know, I met with, like, Brewster and a num- Tabor and a num- number of other schools, but Western Reserve Academy, um, 
made me a wonderful offer. And, and my brother Connor had gone there um, as a student. And my brother Connor really struggled with mental health um, starting his uh, freshman year. Um, and then he repeated his freshman year at Andover and then had a, a sophomore year at Andover. But then he came back to the Mayfield Public School. So he skipped his 11th grade year. So, and then he took a postgraduate year at Western Reserve Academy. And I think part of it, it was personal. It was close to home. Uh, just 40 minutes from my, my, my mom and dad. And many of uh, my soon-to-be colleagues would came up to me and be like, your brother was a sweet boy. Um, you know, the track coach, you know, said, you know, your brother was one of the best athletes I've ever seen. You know, and he played basketball, soccer, and lacrosse at, at a very high level. And he played at lacrosse at Ohio Wesleyan. Um, but he struggled with bipolar. And we didn't really understand what that was. Um, in the early 90s. Um, so it was, um, you know, something that, um, you know, we know a lot more about now. And, you know, I, I just, um, you know, certainly, you know, after 9-11, I left New York City to, 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 to teach. Um, but really, my brother has always kind of been, you know, has given me a gift in terms of like a, a not a spidey sense, but a sense, a keen awareness of like when a kid's struggling, like, you know, or the kid's acting in a certain way that's not him, like talk to me, you know? Um, and just those words, like, come on, talk to me, what's going on? And he'll tell you once one version of the story. And then it's like, what else is on your mind? What else is going on? And you just never know. You know what, because my brother was a great actor, like no one knew he was depressed and it was easier to say he had mono um, when, because mental health and the stigma around mental health um, has, has moved forward, but still there's a lot of myths about, um, you know, sort of bootstraps and, you know, suck it up and, and especially as a young boy, as an athlete, and, you know, we, we can, uh, and, and, and how we use shame to kind of motivate kids, you know, to, you know, to let it go, move on. And it's not always so simple. Um, it's, it's a holistic approach to mental health and, and well-being. Um, and, you know, I pause there because I think, you know, as we move forward, you know, how do we live well? Um, how do we, you know, make everyone feel uh part of the community and welcomed in the community and how do our words matter um, in making, um, you know, families and, and, and loved ones and, you know, feeling connected and not alone. So, um, so a lot of these equity and inclusion conversations, it's, it's more than just like terms, you know, equity and inclusion It's like, how do we, you know, make people feel loved and known and loved um, known and loved is, is the motto at university school. You know, every, every boy should be feel known and loved. Um, but how do we you know, demonstrate that in, in our actions? We can profess to these values, but how do we show that? Yeah, I'm thinking, are, are there certain ways, I'm just thinking about some of my students and trying to, you know, for me, these past three years of teaching, just get them to like open up a little bit more and kind of share these things and, um, I'm just thinking about are there certain ways you can 
you know, tell something that, that is going on or is it really just a kind of a feel thing um, or, a, or like their vibrations or it's, it's hard to get teenagers to kind of op- open up, I think, in that way sometimes. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, you know, I, 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 I think a lot of the work starts from within, you know, to be holding space. Um, and I don't want to get into like vibrations or, or, or like, you know, it's an intuitive thing. Um, because I, I think if we're conscious of our own, um, you know, thoughts and emotions and assumptions that we're making, you know, the, the more self-awareness we have, um, we're not, um, you know, the, the you know, Harvard has a great project, Project Zero, of um, just being with someone um, without coming in with like the advice, like you should do this, you should do this, and like projecting this whole story of expectations. Um, you know, you have everything to be grateful for. Like you're at Gilman, you know, like you should be happy. And, um, you know, happiness isn't that simple. Um, wellness isn't that simple. You know, obviously there's like specific things, you know, um, that may occur. Um, but I, I think, um, tell me more what's going on. I, I think it's just a conversation and taking a risk to have that conversation and then stepping back and listening. Um, and in someone who wants to give a lot of advice, uh, there's a lot of humility in just saying, I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes. Help me understand. Um, I can't imagine. And you may know like tips of the icebergs or that Hemingway iceberg theory, like what is said and the irony beneath the surface, we don't know. So you have to ask. And, and being young as a teacher, um, I, I, I think there, what a wonderful opportunity to just have that courage to have that conversation. And students will open up to you more so um, because they may have a feeling of like being a, you're a mirror to them in a way that like someone you know, further along in their career may seem like maybe, you know, that may look like their dad or look like their mom, and they may not want to open up to it like an adult. But I think a younger teacher, um, in some ways, you can have those conversations. Um, But I think there's there is wisdom, you know, as I, as I say to my students, like, thank you, I've learned more from you than than I've taught. Um, And I think, the further along I go on there is like the more I read, the more I listen, the less I know. Um, so be humble with that. Um, yet I still strive to, to read and listen um, in a way. So there's things we know, there's things we don't know, and there's blind spots, things we don't know, we don't know. And to, and then there's things we know, um, we don't know, you know, but once we are able to name those things that we, we know, but we can't really articulate it, when students are able to like, like they know something's off, but you don't know what it is, you have to have that conversation. Um, but you'll never hit those blind spots. And that and this is for everything that we're kind of facing right now is like, there's so much we don't know, we don't know, you know, especially if you go back to like March, going into the pandemic, the uncertainty, no one knew the answers to any of this. So how do we live with that uncomfortable uncertainty? Mm. You know, 
you know, what a mindfulness practice this has been. And how do you day in and day out today, I'm going to choose courage over comfort. I'm going to ask, how are you doing? You know, and sometimes we don't want to know. Fine. Do you really want to know? <laughs> so, so be prepared. So Kevin, I'm, I'm curious what your, uh, I know I asked you for a book recommendation. You probably thought of about a hundred, but is there one that you're reading now or looking forward to reading the summer or a book that has really impacted you that you can maybe share uh, with, with people who are going to view um, this? Yeah, I, I think, um, I think there's a whole reading list from Brene Brown's uh, Dare to Lead. Um, one of which I'm looking at it is Dr. Pippa Grange. And I think in a world of, of fear, uh, this idea of fearless, uh, how to win at life without losing yourself. And she worked with the national soccer team for England in 2018. And it's a great sport. She's a great sports psychologist. Um, and, and that's a great book. Um, and I have to pull up, you know, the advice trap. Um, and I say, like, these are some of the keywords that have been kind of guiding me and, and the questions that they have there. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of wonderful books to be reading right now around DEIJ, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Um, Robert Livingston's book, the, the Conversation, is recognizing first, you know, the problems that we have, uh, not wanted, and historically what we've taught, um, and I think having the conversation and recognizing first uh, and foremost what the problems are, um, and we we tend to live in these myths of of being colorblind, um, so a new Jim Crow. Um, is, is an incredible book uh, to read. Um, uh, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's work is, you know, I, I think I have to give him a shout out. And then uh, Clint Smith as an English teacher. Uh, he just got his um, uh, PhD from Harvard um, and he just had a new book come out. Um, and then there's Priya Parker, you know, how uh, how we gather um, and and, I think there's there's a wonderful opportunity in this time of transition and transformation going online. Here we are having a conversation uh, via Zoom um, that we are more connected than ever before. Um, yet, how have um, we grown more disconnected? So, um, you know, so I I, I kind of go back to this idea of listening first, uh, reading. And then processing and and getting some clarity around you know my own self awareness, but um, you know fear is has been palpable um, in so many ways and and will continue. Um, but I think this emotional intelligence permission to feel with Mark Brackett. So I can't name just one, um, <laughs> but I guess just just read, just read. And and I think we're so digitally distracted. How do we disconnect from our devices to read a, an actual book? Um, sometimes it feels like a luxury, but I think it's sort of a necessity. Absolutely, it sounds like uh, sounds like a whole stack of books for the summer, which is which is great. And yeah. 
Kevin, I really appreciate your your time today. I wish we had more time to to talk on here, but um, it was an awesome conversation. It was great to see you face to face, quote unquote, instead of on the phone. Yes. But um, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It was awesome. Jake, thank you so much for uh, for asking questions and having me here and, and letting me ramble. Forgive me if I ramble too much, but uh, no way. I wish you the best at bread bread loaf virtually and. and uh, We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. See you later. Be well.